All righty, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records thus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for what it contributes to our understanding of ourself, you, and our salvation. We ask that in this time together we would focus our attention on the greatness of of grace by acknowledging the depth and of depravity and darkness in our heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as I was preparing to preach this series, uh, that 2022 State of Theology report came out. And Many of you have seen it. Uh, if you don't know, every couple years, Ligonier sponsors a, a survey of, of American evangelicals to try to get a handle on, on the state of, of belief about particular doctrines in the broader evangelical world. And it's pretty terrible, uh, the report is. Uh, the findings are pretty terrible. Um, this year, in the 2022 report, uh, it said that 65% of evangelicals affirm the statement that everyone is born innocent in the sight of God. That's 1% less than a full two-thirds. Is it any wonder if... Two-thirds of the church, evangelical church, affirms that, that there's such low appreciation for grace. Grace is a word and a concept that is, is intrinsically connected to Christianity. It's, it's one of those words, those Christian words that goes with Christianity. And it's been around and it's been in use since Bible days. 
But precisely because of the close association of the concept, grace, forgiveness, love, prayer, all those churchy words, there is a shocking lack of understanding and an even more discouraging uh, lack of wonder and appreciation. Um, My aim today is to help you understand what makes grace grace. Okay? What makes grace grace? And the textbook definition or the the shorthanded textbook definition is not wrong, but it can leave a person not with the full picture. The, The shorthand textbook definition of grace is unmerited favor. Okay, simple enough. Well, the, the, the re, that's, not, that's not wrong, it's, it's correct, but there's lots of things that I don't deserve that I get that do not convey what grace conveys. It, it is entirely possible for me to walk through here, I could, I could incur my, my wife's anger and I could go empty out my bank account and, and come walking around here handing out $100 bills. And y'all would like that. And you would hopefully say thank you. And that, in a sense, would be undeserved favor. You didn't earn it from me. I was just giving it to you out of the kindness of my heart. But that misses the fundamental point of what actually makes grace grace. You see, grace is not simply that it's undeserved favor. It's it's that it's undeserved favor in the face of deserved judgment. You, You can't leave out that second half. What makes God's grace grace is the fact that we actually deserve the opposite of what we're getting. We deserve his judgment, his anger, his displeasure, his his condemnation. And just the opposite occurs. He inflicts all of the stuff we deserve on his willing son who, who stood as our substitute. And in the place of what we deserve, we get something we don't. We get life. We get freedom. We get reconciliation. We get acceptance. We get forgiveness. And on and on and on. Grace is scandalous. Grace is so amazing that Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.12 that the angels are in awe of the fact that God gives us grace. Because grace comes to those who not only can't do anything for themselves, but it comes to those who are in active rebellion against a loving God. 
You see, grace is grace precisely because we deserve in its place the fire and the torment of hell. But God doesn't give that to us. And so, in the Reformation, as we celebrate that movement of God in history, in the Reformation, what we had was a recovery of the shocking, scandalous, wonderful good news that God saves sinners truly and completely, and it's in the face of our utter and thorough undeservedness. Here's the context historically. By the time the 16th century rolled around, grace was a concept in the church that was being peddled for profit. If you went to Rome like Martin Luther did to run an errand, he was absolutely depressed to see what he saw, to see the money changers and the vain rote acts of of penance, the priests dispensing supposed grace of God through indulgences, and it was all All just money. Money, money, money. And it meant nothing. He reported that there were brothels just for the priests. He reported that you could receive utter and complete forgiveness without ever really even saying, I'm sorry. It was terrible. But Martin Luther, he had what we would call in our psychological age, he had a guilty conscience. He acutely and keenly felt the weight of his own sin. And because he so existentially and acutely was aware of his imperfections, he understood the law of God. That the law of God is such that God demands and expects absolute conformity to his will and his ways. And Martin Luther was torn over the fact that he could not be perfect. We all have heard the reports that he would finish confessing his sins after hours and hours of meticulously, and his confessor was just going out of his mind, come back when you have something real to confess. And no sooner would Martin Luther leave than he would remember something that he had forgotten and he would go back and and he was desperate. And then eventually, the good news of the gospel broke forth. But you see, what was so paralyzing about the situation Martin Luther was in. And what is so paralyzing for many was that the system that had been developed was a system that, yes, included the word grace, but the the system was not all of grace. And the system included the fact that Martin Luther 
and anyone else who wanted to satisfy the demands of God and be in right relationship with God needed to do their best. And then God would come alongside and, and, and supplement wherever the little bits of imperfection were, would supplement. But if we need to do our best, remember this this wasn't an age where, generally speaking, was acceptable. How good is your best? So Martin Luther was emotionally, emotionally a train wreck. You see, he was building, the Lord was building in Martin Luther the foundation to lead a movement that would utterly transform the world by recovering First of all, the fact that any system of religion that has as a tenant of its salvation that we contribute something, it is destined to fail because it is utterly and completely out of accord with the word of God. Now that system that Martin Luther faced, it still exists. It has morphed over the centuries and it has eked out, eked out into the broader Christian world. And we would say that we are told that God will do 99% of the work to save you, but that last 1% is up to you. Have you heard that? That sounds great. But if that 1% is the determinative 1%, then saying 99%, it's all a shell game. If your salvation is dependent and contingent upon you, then your salvation is up to you. And it is the same thing that Luther faced. Now Martin Luther came to recover the truth that is found throughout the, page of, the pages of Scripture. He found in the book of Galatians, and then in Romans, and here in Ephesians, the answer that we all know, namely, that we are not good people deep down. We are, as Luther would note, completely, completely engulfed in sin. Have you ever wondered why it is that you cannot escape the gravitational pull of the effects of sin in your life? Why try as you might, even as Christians, why try as you might, you stumble all the time and you find yourself afterwards saying, what, what was I thinking? Have you ever wondered why your family cannot escape the gravitational pull of sin? Have you ever wondered why it's, it's, it's like a mystery? Not only is sin in churches, but it's like there's a gravitational pull in, in denominations and churches towards apostasy. And it's like resisting that is, 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 is resisting the gravitational pull of, of a planet or something. Well, the, the answer, brothers and sisters, is bound up in our human nature. And when you come to a biblical understanding 
of human nature. Not only do you then have the key to make better sense of the world and your place in it, but then you are well positioned to then turn your attention to how great a Savior Jesus is to save you from all that you are. We see in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead. And God, in his mercy, calls out to the dead and makes them alive. We were by nature objects of wrath, children of wrath. What that means is that our nature was one of hostility to God. We were hostile in mind to God. Our nature, according to Jesus in John 3, 19, was such that we loved the darkness. Out of our wicked hearts came all the deeds that we do. So it, it is not like we are born innocent and then just get messed up along the way. That was the view of Pelagius. Pelagius was a 4th century British monk who heard about Augustine's confessions and he read the line or had read, the line was read to him, Lord, give what you command and then command what you will and that infuriated him because if we're dependent on God for, for, for us to do his will, then that takes away in Pelagius' mind our moral legs and responsibility to be holy. And so Pelagius went so far as to deny the idea that we are children of wrath by nature. And he says that these are all metaphors for the fact that we come into the world surrounded by bad examples. We come into the world a blank slate, and all we have around us are bad examples, but nonetheless, you are blank, and you have the very real potential to keep all of God's commands. But not only is that unbiblical, it just doesn't even make sense. If everybody is come, comes into the world with a blank slate and all we have are bad examples, surely somebody, surely there would be some pocket of people that were just sublime, right? But that, that's not the way it is. And of course, Pelagianism was defeated consistently in every council of the church because it's just so grossly unbiblical, and it's just absurd in the face of human experience. But then it's twisted half-sibling split off of it, and we had something called semi-Pelagianism, which says, yes, yes, yes. We have a sinful nature, and we're bad. We really, really are. We're bad. But nonetheless, there remains in us, because we are God's image, there remains in us the, 
the spark of goodness from whence true acts of faith and piety can come. And it's this spark that is appealed to in the gospel call. And if we will just from out of it reach out and take hold of the offer given to us by Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come and cleanse us and renew us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature objects of wrath. Psalm 51.5 says that our corruption is with us from the moment of our conception. Psalm 58 tells us that we are estranged from God from the womb. And that we all go our own way and that we are basically natural born liars. That's a true statement if I ever heard one. I mean, every parent here knows. It's, it's astounding, isn't it astounding that, that, you, that your child demonstrates a greater natural proclivity to lying than it does to being potty trained. We speak lies from the womb, the psalmist says. It's part of our nature. It literally is like we are natural born liars. And all of this is evidence of that sickness that is deep, deep within us. And it, of course, is known in our tradition as total depravity, that, that we're not as bad as we could all, you know, not, we're not Jeffrey Dahmer, I, I hope not. But, you know, we're not stealing candy from, from little kids and pushing old ladies into the traffic. We're not doing, but what it does mean, the, the, the important thing that you need to take away with total depravity is that every single faculty or part of you your mind, your will, your emotions, your body, every part of you is contaminated with sin. There is no part of you that is pure and pristine. We all are completely, thoroughly lost. And what's the effect of that on us? Well, the effect of that, according to Jesus, is a number of things. Your sin, or the sin of a person, uh, according to Jeremiah 13, he asks the question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to do evil. Total depravity, the total corruption of all of our parts has a lot of practical effects. First, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, we cannot bear good fruit. You can't. Per John 6, you cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws you. Per John 14, you cannot accept the Spirit. Per Romans 8, you cannot submit to God's law and you cannot please God. 
According to 1 Corinthians 12, your total depravity makes it such that you cannot confess Jesus as Lord. Per 1 Corinthians 2, it says that because of total depravity, you can't even understand the things of God. And I'm stopping there because that's seven. So, I'm not saying all this to beat you up. Because if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And and that's what the new creationalness of the new creation does, is it is it reverses this. But I'm bringing this up because for salvation to be of grace and for grace to be real grace, you have to understand the way you are, the way you are constitutionally, the way you are in your person. If God were to leave you alone, you would never in a bazillion years freely choose to come to him. If God leaves you alone, the sun would burn out before you came to Jesus. If salvation is contingent upon this 1% of you doing the labor, then because of what the Bible says of the effects of your sin on you, you are hopelessly damned because that 1% will never be done. And it's not as if you are being prevented. It's that you're hostile in nature and mind to God and you will never, ever freely do it. Which is why the beauty of the miracle of the new birth, it's not that God holds a gun to your head and you have no choice, but he gifts you with a new nature. And from that nature, faith comes. We need to be regenerated. According to Jesus in John 3, 3, unless we're born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. We desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's what makes grace so amazing is that God doesn't just say, oh, he doesn't deserve my help. It's that God is looking at people who are spiritually dead openly hostile, openly rebellious, without any hope of on their own them turning to him. And he reaches down and says, I will save. And he brings you to himself. That, brothers and sisters, is amazing. So there's a few reasons why getting it right really matters. Okay, uh, first and foremost, uh, we, need to pres- we need to tell the truth about God. And God is a God who saves. Jesus really is a Savior who saves. He doesn't just come and do some work and expect a corpse to respond. I, I, I hate the analogy There's so many bad analogies. Oh, 
I hate the bad analogy of, of you know, you're in a house that's on fire and, and God knocks down the door and he's calling to you, come out, come out, and you just got to go. That's so terrible. That is not what the Bible depicts at all. A, a, a still flawed analogy, but still much better would be you're on the ground, in the, you're on the floor in that house, passed out from smoke inhalation, and the fireman comes in, kicks the door down, drags you out, and you wake up in a hospital because someone did something to you. That's closer. You don't do anything to receive God's grace. He's a Savior who saves. He comes in when you can't do anything and says, I gotcha. That's awesome. Second, whenever and wherever you have any variation of the God plus me saves model, you have a diminishment of amazement and wonder at the concept of grace. It inherently flows because to the extent that I get credit For my salvation, to that degree, God does not. There is no way to to, to not go that route and be logically consistent and practically real. The glory of God, the majesty of God, your praise to God as a marvelous Savior depends on seeing him truly as the source of and the executor of your salvation. Third, you need to know that God saved you precisely when you couldn't because of the comfort that it is. Think about all the times you have in life where you're just holding on. Jesus, I don't know if I can hold on. Well, you can hold on because he's holding on to you. And just like your salvation didn't depend on you to, at the start, his grace is sufficient to hold you even when you feel like you are floundering. That's comforting. Fourth, it explains why you and I struggle with sin. Why we need God's sanctifying grace in our life as we seek to mortify and put to death the deeds of our our sinful fallen nature. But that explains the struggle. That I'm, I'm really not good. The only goodness in me is the stuff that is given to me by the Holy Spirit and, and, and what I'm seeing, the carnage that I make of my life and everything else, that's that's not God's fault, that's me. Thanks be to God, he gives me grace. And I can have confidence that my tomorrow is not going to look like my yesterday. Fifth, and finally, brothers and sisters, the reality that we are dead in our sins, hostile in mind and in nature, objects of wrath, That tells us you cannot save yourself. It is possible that within the sound of my voice is someone who thinks that they've done something really wonderful. 
and that God is just in amazement of how lucky he is that you're rendering obedience to him. I'm telling you, if you think that you're going to go before God on the basis of your accomplishments and attainments, man, oh man, the standard is absolute perfection, which is why no one, no one, not one person can meet it because we have all sinned. Every single one of us has sinned and has fallen short of the glory of God. So don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your good works and attainments. Even Paul, with his, with his lengthy list of accomplishments, understood that it was all like trash in comparison to the beauty of the pristine gospel that God saves sinners. The undeserving find a place at the very table of God as beloved sons and daughters. Can you imagine? This is almost offensive. Imagine if old boy Osama bin Laden had apologized and come and he wants to have dinner with you. You'd be like, no way. He's my enemy. But God, in his great love for us, takes, takes all of us who are like Osama bin Laden to ourselves and he makes us his children and he receives us. That's beautiful. So, brothers and sisters, the first point of our Reformation study is that grace is grace precisely because it gives us the opposite of what we deserve or rightfully expect. And in exchange for Christ taking our sin, he gives us life. And that is wonderful. So now, so now every day that you live from here to eternity, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. That's grace. Let's pray. Almighty God, we can't fix ourselves. We can only come to you because of a merciful act on your part to bestow this undeserved, unmerited favor upon us. Lord, we ask that you would lavish us with more and more till our hearts are overflowing with wonder and amazement that you would love a filthy wretch such as we God, we are confident and we are ecstatic that you have accepted the Son's sacrifice on our behalf and that every good thing we get is because of him. We thank you for finding us in him. And we look forward to the day we get to rejoice face to face. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.